I love that roar. Thank you for tuning in to No Cure for Curiosity. I am Shani Luft, the Associate Professor of Religion and Associate Dean of General Education at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. I was inspired by the release of Godzilla vs. Kong by Universal Studios this month, and so I asked Carrie Elza to come back and talk to me about that film, as well as the history of Godzilla and King Kong in cinema. Carrie Elza, you remember, is the Associate Professor of Media Studies here at UWSP, where she teaches courses on screenwriting, film and media analysis, history, and genre. We also invited Valerie Barsky to join us. Valerie is the professor and coordinator of the International Studies Program at UWSP. Her specialties include East Asia, modern Japan, cultural history of Okinawa, women and gender studies, and theories of the body and embodiment. Carrie, Valerie, and I had such a great conversation, I decided to split it up into two episodes. It's our first two-parter. In the episode you're going to hear today, Valerie, Carrie, and I talk mostly about the history of Godzilla and King Kong in cinema. In our next episode, which will drop on May 10th, I'll share the second half of our conversation, which will focus primarily on the current Godzilla-slash-King Kong monster universe, and especially focus on the Godzilla vs. Kong film that was released this March. If you have thoughts and comments, please hop over to our Facebook page at No Cure for Curiosity and share your thoughts. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Valerie Barske and Carrie Elza, I'm so excited to talk to you both. I went back and watched the original Godzilla. I feel like everybody is aware of the fact that the story of the monster is that it it rises because of nuclear testing. The movie comes out just nine years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But what stood out to me in the original movie is the metaphor of Godzilla is even more explicit than I had realized. For example, the body of Godzilla does not look like contemporary Godzilla, right? Contemporary Godzilla is like lizard or dinosaur-like. That original Godzilla looks like a body that is scarred from nuclear radiation. It's a really, it's a much more disturbing monster than, it, than I had remembered it. I remember just the movie being metaphorically about nuclear war and the bomb, but it is much more explicit and obvious and unmissable than I had even realized. I think my comment to that is, if you remember that the U.S. occupation ends just not that long before this film, 1952, and there was extreme censorship on artists, on writers, on everyone trying to find a new vocabulary for how are you going to talk about this? How are we going to make sense of something that no other place has experienced and that we still don't know what it means? And so by, by 1954, there's really a desire um, to find how do you represent those scarred bodies. There were some great artists um, in Hiroshima doing these huge panels, the Maruki panels about Hiroshima, and they used real bodies to like ma map what the bodies looked like and then made them look distorted. I think Godzilla is playing off of all of that as well, right? A new yeah. visual vocabulary for that trauma. I like, yeah, I like this emphasis on embodiment too. I remember when I went to Japan and went to the Hiroshima Museum, the actual scarred bodies you can see in the museum. And I, I remember that really striking me as a, as a teenager. Um, but what struck me in rewatching the original Godzilla this time was the pain that I saw. So yeah, yes to all of this, yes to the, the mutated body of Godzilla that has bumps and sliminesses and and movements in weird and creepy ways you know that it feels like hard it feels um it feels real and, and gross right 
but the pain on people. I, I didn't, I hadn't seen the 1954 Godzilla in a long time. And, uh, I watched it, um, a couple of weeks ago and I, I, I was sad. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's a sad movie. You see a lot of scenes of people in the aftermath of the Godzilla attacks, you know, children crying, people injured, people taking care of each other. And I just, uh, you know, maybe the last time I saw it, I was in my twenties. And so I was a more, <laughs> I was a little bit in a different frame of mind, but I didn't remember that pain. And so the expression of pain there um, is very much tied to that time period. There's like this, what seems to be like a throwaway moment in the movie where a unidentified mother is kind of huddling with her two children, right? As the monster is kind of rampaging Tokyo. Oh. And she just oh, has yeah. one line, which is, um, uh, we're going to go be with daddy now, right? Presumably it, it implies that their their father, husband died in the war. That character doesn't show up anyplace else in the movie. It's just this one sentence to communicate the degree of suffering that these people have felt prior to Godzilla being there, right? Godzilla is just the next wave of suffering. It's such a, um, a bleaker movie than I had remembered or realized. Absolutely. And I think that's very intentional by the director. So Hondo Ishiro is a war survivor. He was in a POW camp at some point. He's very intentionally referencing this. And he wasn't a, you know, a kaiju kind of monster movie guy. He would, he did other kind of intense romances and female centered, um, directing female centered films, but he wanted this to have a purpose. He wanted to, to say a message. And some people said, you're stupid for putting messages into these silly movies, but he had a real intentionality to including those kinds of scenes. Um, I think it's really crucial. Yeah, and I remember too a different um, perspective expressed uh, about um, you know the recent past in that film too. And, and forgive me if this is fuzzy for me, but there seems to be a blaséness too, doesn't there? So there, at one point, at one point, there's a numbness expressed by one of the characters saying, "Oh, this is just another thing," or "Oh, here we go again," or something like that. And I, I might be misremembering, but I, I re- but but I remember hearing that and thinking. Well, this is the kind of perspective of a uh, of a society that has been so beaten down um, that that the only response at that point is to is to numb themselves, is to say, "Well, just another thing. I guess we'll deal with this too." Um, so, th- so I, th- a variety of perspectives to um, to recent suffering, I think, are apparent in this movie. And it's not, I, I think I, I want to uh, go back a little bit and say, it's not like, oh, this horrible thing happens in the war and now we have a monster to represent it. There, That's a, a trope. Um, it's a, an, a kind of archetype, a trend that you see throughout, um, certainly throughout modern Japanese history and probably pushing back further. Representations of the Jigoku hells, like the hell scrolls in Buddhist depictions in the 13th century. Um, moving forward to like dealing with earthquakes volcanoes, all these natural disasters that that uh, may graph with mistakes that humans made, but really aren't about what happens in terms of science or humanity. And using things like these Namazu characters, characters of like big overgrown carp that have to do with the earthquakes and trying to make sense of trauma by giving it um, a kind of grotesque embodiment. 
that seems to be uh, very comforting, actually, in history and in cultural context, that there's that you can either place blame on something or look to something for comfort. Uh, I think that's really quite powerful. And that's the tradition I feel that Godzilla really comes from. And it's important to just throw out there, too, that the personification of um, of forces and forces outside of our control or forces that seem like they're outside of our control is also happening in the U.S. at the same time, too. You know, uh, we've got The Day the Earth Stood Still and Byron Haskins' War of the Worlds, which both come out before Godzilla. So so there's a lot going on, all, you know, all internationally about using monsters to represent those things that are too big, like too big for us to really think to think through um, on our own. I mean, Godzilla is just cool, right? Just super cool, right? Every time I go to look at it and I think, I'm not really a monster person. I see so many intersections in every direction that I just get like, I kind of geek out even though I'm not a Godzilla geek out person. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, but I wanted to throw out there too that um, I just looked it up. Um, the Disney um, Our Friend the Atom episode comes out in 1957 and is largely a kind of um, adaptation of Eisenhower's uh, Atoms for Peace speech at the UN General Assembly in 1953. So there's a lot of that kind of public relations attempt to recoup nuclear power. The atom is our future. We've made plans to build an exhibit at Disneyland that will show you atomic energy in action. But at the same time, Popular culture knows that this is the blowing smoke. Um, so there's these kind of different attitudes circulating, and the monster films are expressing these very legit fears that people have. I wanted one of you uh, mentioned the word kaiju earlier, right? The, mm. These giant monsters uh, and robots. I, I've always associated these kind of giant monsters and robots with Japan. And so I was going to ask this question, does Japan have like this particular affinity for giant monsters? But Carrie, you're reminding me that in the 1950s, there were lots of American movies about giant ants and giant spiders. And does that have to do with something happening in culture? Does it have to do with just a, a, a kind of new way of, um, of special effects? But yeah, there are, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of um, special effects uh, artists that are working in the 1950s to make these um, monsters possible. And, you know, famously, the Godzilla monster or the Godzilla, um, uh, Godzilla is a suit, right? Um, what was it called? Sudimation or something yeah, was the term they used for the special effect, which I love. Because, you know, the fact that it's not stop motion, instead, uh, instead, it is like literally uh, a guy in a suit. I mean, on the one hand, it, it looks, um, uh, you know, hokey, sure, to our eyes today. But on the other hand, it has that smoothness of movement, which some of these stop motion monsters just don't have. Like, if you think about those giant, the giant ants in them, um, those giant ants, like, they're great. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to disparage the giant ants, but, uh, but Godzilla has a kind of movement that adds realism to the um, kind of a, a, a realistic effect to the destruction that he wreaks upon these miniature cities. Um, so the pseudimation innovation, as funky as it might look to our eyes today, for me, it feels more visceral. Um, and this could be entirely subjective. But yeah, I, lots lots of interesting choices being made in practical effects during the 1950s. So let's jump over to King Kong, because while uh, the original King Kong movie comes out 20, 30 years earlier, 1933, but it has a direct impact on Godzilla. First, the original 1933 King Kong had been re-released in the 1950s, 
And so it's still in the popular imagination. And the character of King Kong directly inspires the character of Godzilla. So it's not a modern idea or early 21st century idea that these two creatures should be put up against each other. They were fighting each other <laughs> 10 years after Godzilla was created, right? They're, they're like directly, they seem like uh, uh, siblings from the beginning. I was just going to say, I, I would like you all to know that um, for the sake of this conversation, I made a, an extreme parenting mistake. And I, sh- I showed my children, who are almost four and six, the original 1933 King Kong. I did not do Godzilla. I thought Godzilla was going to be too much. Um, but I decided to go for it with King Kong. And I, I will say that the 1933 King Kong packs a punch for small children. Sure. Um, yes, there were nightmares. Um, there were wow. some very uncomfortable conversations about race. Really? Um, oh, can't, the original King Kong is a horrifically racist movie. And I misremembered, you know, which is on me. For sure it's on me. Um, but but we did have to have some very interesting conversations about the way that um, that people, that you know, this, this kind of tribe that worships Kong is portrayed. I also did some strategic editing with this movie. Um, and it had nothing to do with the with the gorilla. It had to do with the depiction of this tribe. So um, so. Uh, the original King Kong is uh, is fascinating, but it really does lay a lot of the tropes um, in place that will continue for a lot of these other kaiju movies. I didn't really watch the original Kong. So what are, are the tropes that you are, are thinking about? The original Kong has at its core this idea that you must present to Kong a maiden mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Kong will be placated with a maiden uh, to, um, I don't know, love and to hold, unpeel like a banana is what happens to fate, right? And if the maiden is removed from Kong, Kong will wreak havoc. So we see here a beauty and the explicitly a beauty and the beast narrative. And that idea is carried into the more recent visions of Kong as well. Kong needs the, Kong needs the girlfriend um, in, all, in all of the most recent um, Kong movies, the girlfriend is either kind of Brie Larson or the girlfriend is, um, is the, the small uh, member of the Iwi tribe, uh, who can speak to Kong in sign language. We should totally get into that topic. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So let's jump into that. So Valerie and I w- got to watch the new Kong, uh, versus, uh, the Kong V Godzilla movie together. And we kept talking about this, uh, deaf girl who had this special relationship with, King Kong, it seemed to both continue this, what, 90-year-old trope of King Kong and a maiden that he has this kind of special relationship with. Um, did it improve upon any of that, or did it sort of reinforce the long-standing kind of racist tropes that the original Kong carried? But as someone who studies um, embodied action signs and who actually studies people from um, what is, you know, kind of a post-colonial island context, um, I very much responded to Gia and to the to the actress who, at, at least, um, I will give a nod to the fact that she's genuinely a, a deaf actress, Kaylee Hoddle. And I think it was powerful to watch the way in which they use the image of a native girl, of an island girl, perhaps, from, you know, this kind of skull island world. But, and it's powerful that she's able to communicate. It's not saying that she can't talk, but she doesn't have a voice. and trying to intersect and give kind of representation of native peoples and yet 
perhaps stifling them, perhaps giving them limitations, even though, right, we, we want to acknowledge absolutely that it's it's great that she's represented as an authentic, there's an authenticity to the actress playing her, uh, taking this in this longer question about indigeneity. And uh, for me, it was really striking that she didn't have a voice. From the 1933 King Kong to the present, the weird yeah. way in which Kong always seems to have a damsel that is placating his hostility right he needs a woman to make him more um sensitive more thoughtful you know kinder to discourage him from fighting it feels like a very 19th century notion of womanhood uh, it is and it comes from Marion cooper um so Marion cooper who came up with the idea for kong the very first image that we see in the first King Kong movie. So this is, uh, you know, it starts with an overture and then you, we get the credits and then Marion Cooper makes up a quote. So the quote is allegedly an old Arabian proverb, proverb that says, and the prophet said, and lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty and it stayed its hand from killing. And, and from that day, it was it was as one dead. So this old Arabian proverb is what we what choose our expectations for the very beginning of King Kong. The only thing that is going to be able to placate the beast is beauty. And that is among the oldest ideas that they're possibly like, that this I it's in every romance novel, right? That there's some kind of some kind of rascal who just needs a good woman to tame him. You know, that is such an old and 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 dangerous idea, right? It's such it, the, the feminine labor that has to go in yeah, to placating of Kong in the the first the first movie. Literally, Faye Ray gets pulled off the street because they need, um, you know, Carl Denham is this is this kind of megalomaniacal filmmaker who wants to go to Skull Island and film something. He doesn't know what, but he knows he needs a maiden. Right. And so, you know, she gets pulled off the street. She gets um, convinced to come on this crazy adventure. She gets sacrificed to King Kong. She gets chased all over the place. And it, but it's on her. Right. It's her responsibility to be the one who placates Kong. And eventually she's the cause of his undoing. So this relationship between um, between beastliness and the beauty is when we've seen all, you know, many times over since, but that is the basic idea of the story of King Kong. What raises for me, I know it's not a simplistic East versus West movie, the, the most recent one. However, there are absolutely those undertones. And so for me, it's a really big question of how then does this quasi perhaps associated with an African or even as you're su suggesting an Arabian ritualistic background of the mythical skull island, how does that become a representation of the U.S.? How does that become an embodiment somehow if we're talking about in these bigger kaiju worlds that that's going to be the one that stands for kind of Western civilization or Euro-American something when you have all these other characters from other parts of the exotic world, right? Exotic in, in quotation. Yeah, the new movie definitely feels like a East versus West kind of like the monsters represent like peoples, right? That That's how I read it, right? There's like a, King Kong is like the representative of the United States and Godzilla is the representative of Japan. 
I don't quite. I, so I, I don't know if it maps that cleanly, honestly, um, because because we you know we have we have these casts, these multicultural casts. We go all across the globe, and it seems to me that the real enemy in this movie, right, is uh, multinational corporations. Yep, mm. capitalism. Right, it's ca- it's capitalism because Mecha Godzilla is the real is the real problem. Yeah, I'm not. I I see I see that, and I and I and I don't right. Like I'm not sure that it maps that cleanly, and I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah, King Kong does seem to be um, friendlier than Godzilla. There's the possibility of communicating with King Kong. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I have to think about that for a minute. I agree that it, it can't be that clean of a read, right? It can't be quite, it's got to be messier. But there is something happening as we build up these interactions between these two big characters. There's some reference to world superpowers or what the dynamics are in the world. I do think it's significant. We can circle back to they. there's a whole scene in Hong Kong. Um, but I'm saying, but don't they're completely ignorant of what's happening in terms of uproars of democracy and the place that Hong Kong lives between kind of Euro-American having been a British territory and now returning to China. Like, I feel like Hong Kong is also significant in the, in the location of this film. I couldn't get any sense that the movie had any sensitivity or awareness of the real Hong Kong that exists in the world, including the fact that this Hong Kong is empty right? Mm-hmm. It has enormous giant buildings that should has house millions of people. There are no people in it. It is the opposite of the original Godzilla, where they cut to people like that woman huddling with her children. You do not see any reference to the human toll of what King Kong and Godzilla are doing, right? It, 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 that battle that takes place at the end should kill millions of p- human beings, there are no depictions of any impact on any human beings. The last 30 minutes of the movie look like a child playing with toys. Yeah. And I was, I, during all of this, I was kind of struck by the similarities to Pacific Rim too. Mm-hmm. The Del Toro one, the good one. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I was just looking up here where the battles took place. Cause I was like, it looks so similar to Pacific Rim. And yeah, the mm-hmm. battles are in Hong Kong too and Pacific Rim. And I think part of that is just, is honestly a visual choice, but you're right. You're right, Valerie, that they can't be ignorant of this. I mean, this is a film that is designed to work overseas. It's a it's a film that is designed to um, do well at the international. Well, I say box office, but it's designed to do well with international streaming. Right? It is. It is calculated, like many of these large blockbusters are, to appeal specifically specifically to Chinese audiences as well, which is where now American blockbusters make a lot of their money. Mm-hmm. Um, so they must take that into consideration when making a movie that's this flipping expensive. So they can't be ignorant of this. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that perhaps we can i mean we could maybe map on this this fight between the east and the west in hong kong as having a greater significance i can i can see that i can see that the other thing about godzilla that strikes me not just the character not just in this film but just the character in general is godzilla always seems connected to japan's relationship with the united states Mm -hmm. it seems constantly godzilla and king kong seem just endlessly connected to one another and godzilla seems always about the complex relationship that japan has with america valerie i wanted you to talk about that there what there is a complex kind of 
love, hate, um, loving, falling in love with your captive, your capture kind of thing going on between the U.S. and Japan in the 1950s and 60s. The King Kong comes out, I think, in 62, Godzilla versus King Kong. And mm-hmm. they've just gone through this tumultuous experience of what is the new U.S.-Japan security treaty, the Ampojoyaku. What is that going to look like? And there was a bunch of like railroading by the Liberal Democratic Party. There's all this kind of political manipulation happening. Well, that's the next thing I wanted to talk about is um, from my chi- my childhood of thinking about Godzilla movies, I had remembered Godzilla being a protector of Japan mm. because there are a couple of movies yeah. where that seems to happen, right? Where Godzilla climbs up out of the water, swims up out of the oceans and then destroys a monster that is, in fact, attacking Japan. And so Godzilla becomes like their um, avatar, right? He becomes like the uh, defender of Japan. So I was curious going into the new movie, how are they going to depict Godzilla's relationship with the nation of Japan? Is Godzilla their their national avatar, their representative, like at the Olympics, right? These, these monster mm. movies are like every nation submits a monster to the Olympics and they all, <laughs> they all punch each other. Or is Godzilla going to be more like a force of nature, like in the original? And it was it was more like the latter, I thought, right? Godzilla is just a force of nature. Uh, it, it, he's destroying, but in a way that he's not conscious of, right? And then in other ways, Godzilla in the movie seems to create a, a relationship with Kong. I'm trying to understand Godzilla's personality, right? Is he a monster to be afraid of? Or yeah. is he like Godzilla, our friend who will come rescue us when we need him? But I think well, it depends like, on who's doing the depicting. So in, in, right. in the Shin, Shin Godzilla, Gojira, so Shin Gojira, meaning the new Godzilla came out, I think it was 2016 or 2017, you know, the prime minister and, and others, Abe, were saying, oh, but we should be proud of this. It, it was uh, for him a chant to remilitarize Japan and Japan's going to be this great nation. And, and Godzilla could be a symbol of that. Um, and that was post Fukushima. Right. So I do think it matters. What if, is it? Hollywood? Is it Tokyo? Who's doing the representation of Godzilla and who's appropriating him? They for for what purposes matters, I think. Right. And I was going to say, he's, you know, he, he's not like uh, nuclear power itself. Right. Um, it, you know, it, it, it depends, like it depends on the situation. Right. I do get the sense in, in uh, this movie and in the 2014 Godzilla um, that, you know, he, he is, he's uncontrollable. Right. But he can work either for or, or against you, depending on how you treat him and communicate with him. Right. So the um, by the end of this movie, where it's, it becomes clear that the real enemy is not Godzilla, the real enemy is runaway corporate power and overreaching and technology. That Godzilla is our friend in to protect us from ourselves, <laughs> from our own delusions of godlike grandeur. Um, Godzilla and the other Titans are there to remind us that we are not the sole inhabitants of this planet. And that was made way more explicit in the Godzilla King of the Monsters movie. Yeah, the 2019 one in which, which was not as, I don't know, I, I, I hesitate to be reductive, but I don't think it was quite as good as this one. But that had a really explicit like metaphor of um, uh, climate climate change and um, taking care of the planet and all of these titans are rising up, right? And, um, and you know, we have to make sure that the right titans are in control 
Um, and, and we have to make sure that we take care of the planet so that the Titans, like kind of like Lovecraftian old ones, um, mm. don't just decide to take it back from us. I definitely get that sense that Godzilla's, Godzilla's threat versus benevolence changes based on the circumstances. So that wraps up the conversation that focused primarily on the history of Godzilla and on King Kong. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Carrie Elza and Valerie Barske, for joining me. Please come back in two weeks and listen to Carrie, Valerie, and I talk about 2021's Godzilla versus King Kong.